Well, for this morning, I want to start by actually putting a picture up here. We should have a black and white picture. How many of you know who this is? It's okay if you don't. I had no idea up until like three or four weeks ago when I started preparing for this message. This is Anna Bartlett Warner. Anna, you're like, who is that? Anna Bartlett Warner, born in 1827, had a sister named Susan, born in New York. And Anna and Susan had a predominantly very decent childhood. Unfortunately, though, when they were fairly young, their mother passed away. And kind of during that time, Anna and Susan kind of developed a passion for writing, poetry, songs, short stories. And in particular, after their mother passed away, their father, with what seemed to be with the best intentions, kind of made some financial mistakes and kind of put their family in a difficult spot. And so what the two sisters wanted to do was help create some stories and poems and writings to kind of maybe hopefully make a little bit of money on the side, but really just because they really enjoyed it. And one of the stories that Anna's older sister Susan began to write was a story called Say and Sail. Don't need to go into the details of that. But in that story, there is a scene that Susan had written where there was a young little boy who was bedridden and sick and suffering in a very bad way. And an, an older doctor who was there at the bedside. And Susan wanted to write a very kind of poignant and powerful poem or song kind of in that scene of the story to kind of capture the comfort that the doctor was attempting to give to that little boy. And so Susan, you know, kind of pondered and thought and was thinking about what to actually write in that moment, but she couldn't really think up of anything. So she asked her younger sister, Anna, would you take a crack at it? Would you kind of help me with this? And so Anna kind of took the story, kind of worked with it, and came up with these words as a poem or short song in this scene. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible, or if you're my two-year-old daughter, you say it like this, for the Bible tells me so, and you, ex you extend this so really long. But that's the origin of that song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There you go. And I'd venture to say that for many of you in this room, and I would kind of put money on it, for probably everyone in this room, that song and that idea is extremely familiar to you. And therein lies the potential problem. The fact that Jesus' love for you and for me becoming so familiar, so familiar that it loses its power in our lives. Oh yeah, I've heard that before. Oh yeah, that's what we talked about when I was a little kid or what my parents sung to me. But now that I'm an adult, we move on to more mature things, right? Not so fast. See, becoming over-familiar with the fact that God loves you and me individually is a very dangerous place to be. In fact, when we become so familiar with God's love, it leads to a life that is not truly life. It leads to a life that is shriveled in comparison to the life that God has for us. And it, we come to a place where we lose the sense of power that God's love have, has in our lives. But 
when we personally experience and know the power of God's love in our lives, our lives begin to flourish. Our lives begin to become the lives that God has for us. And this is exactly what I want to talk to you about today as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 9. As we talk about the power of God's love in our lives. In order to do this, I want to work through this text in three movements, looking at God's love for us in our lives, that we wouldn't become familiar with it, but that we would really personally experience and know the power of that love. And so the first part I want to look at, how God's love is powerfully committed to us. And then the second part, look at how God's love has power over our stories or power over our past. And then lastly, I want to look at how God's love has the power to give us what we cannot gain or attain on our own. So with that said, let's dive in. The first part here, the power of God's committed love, or God's love is powerfully committed. Starting in verse 1, 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him loyal love for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, that's Ziba, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the loyal love of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now let's pause right there for a moment. Twice we've read this phrase, the loyal love. And in particular, David in particular wants to demonstrate and show the quote, loyal love of God to someone in the house of Saul. Now, we need to really camp out and understand what David is saying or what the text is saying about David. David is not wanting to just demonstrate just love abstractly. He's not just wanting to demonstrate love from himself, per se. He wants to demonstrate the love, the loyal love of God to someone else. And friends, this is David at his best. This is David so aligned with the heart and purposes of God that the love that he is seeking to to flow out of him, the love that he's wanting to demonstrate tangibly, is in fact the loyal love of God. And it's for this reason here in this story that while I, yes, on one hand believe that this is a real story that's rooted in history based on real historical events, this story is also a beautiful picture of what it looks like for Christ to love us. It's a beautiful picture of what it looks like for God's love to be demonstrated in our lives. Because the love that David is going to show, this loyal love, is in fact the loyal love of God himself. And I need you to understand this because as we walk through the story, what I want you to see is David kind of standing in the place of Jesus, so to speak. This, the actions that David is going to show are in fact what it looks like for God to tangibly demonstrate and show his love to us. And in particular... This idea of the loyal love is a very, very important word for us to understand. Loyal love, we think we have it on the slide here, is the word hesed or hesed in Hebrew. I think I had you do this with me last week, but can you do it again? Can you say that word with me one more time? Hesed. 
It's a beautiful word that often is translated in a number of ways. We have it here in, in yellow, loyal love. Sometimes in your Bibles it will be the steadfast love or faithfulness or mercy or compassion. But what, what, what's happening there, and if you notice this as you read through your English Bible, is that there's so many of these kind of similar but slightly different English words to capture this one word in Hebrew. And what that should signal to you as a Bible reader is simply this, that this, this word is like a suitcase that's being overpacked. You know how you try to cram all your carry-on when you go on an airplane? And you try to stuff it as full as possible so you don't have to wait for your check bag on the other end, right? That's exactly what's kind of happening with this word. So much of the steadfastness, the faithfulness, the mercy, the loyalty, and the love of God is captured in this one word. The rugged commitment that God has to his people. This is why so often in the Psalms and the prophets, the biblical writers celebrate how the steadfast love or the hased of God never ceases. That this is a rugged, committed love that God has to his people. And it is this rugged, committed love that King David wants to show, what does our text say? To someone in the house of Saul. Now think about that for a moment. The house of Saul. That's David's enemy. See, think about it like this for a moment. David has, up to this point, basically had smooth sailing. He's ascended to the throne of Jerusalem, ascended to the throne of Israel. He's in power. Things are going his way. And if you're an ancient king who's gained power who's become king over a particular area, one of the first things that you would want to do as king is to secure that throne, to secure that sort of realm, so to speak, by making sure anyone from the preceding administration is no longer on the map. That's why when in the Christmas story, the Magi come to King Herod and they say, where is the the, the baby, King Jesus, King of the Jews? And Herod goes into a panic and he wants to eliminate any threat to his throne. So if you're an ancient reader of this text and you read that King David wants to show the loyal love of God to someone from the previous administration, a.k.a. the enemy, you're blown away at this point. That this is not what an ancient king was supposed to do. In fact, what you would be expecting to have read here is King David asking, where is any family member of the house of Saul that I might make sure we deal with them? Or if I might make sure that they are eliminated and no longer a threat to my throne. But no, that's not what the text says. That's not what David wants to do. Because remember, David's heart is so aligned with God at this point. This is David at his best. By the way, next week we'll have David at his worst. But let's have David have a moment of glory right here. And when David is at his best, he is showing committed love even to his enemies. I think Jesus taught us something about that once or twice. And when David is showing love here, he's showing it to the house of Saul, and the text says, for what? For Jonathan's sake. And there we're reminded of that friendship, that commitment that David made to Jonathan. Because remember, all the way back in 1 Samuel 20, we read that story about how David and Jonathan made a covenant or a pact together. And when Jonathan realized that David's life was like trending up and to the right, David was becoming more popular and it was clear that the Spirit of the Lord was on David and that David was going to replace Saul as king. Jonathan comes to David 
and says, David, remember me and my family. 1 Samuel 20, remember me and my family and make a covenant, show steadfast love to me. Jonathan asked David. And David remembers and makes a promise and says, you know what, Jonathan? I will. And it's here in this moment right now, David remembers that promise he made chapters and years ago to his friend Jonathan. And he asked that question, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I might show this loyal, committed love to? He's asking, he's wondering, how can I sh show the hesed of God? And look at what David hears. There's this son, Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said in verse 4, where is he? Where is he? Again, think about this for a moment. If you're a king looking to have someone kind of become close to you, someone to kind of bring into your fold, you're not necessarily looking for someone who's crippled. Because someone who's crippled is kind of like at the margins of society. Not someone high and mighty. Not someone who's thought of as important. But David doesn't say, oh, forget about it then. That person's crippled. No, he asked the question, where is he? Because this is someone that David wants to show the committed, loyal love of God to. And in the same way, Christ shows that same committed love to you and to me. Regardless of what we've done, regardless of the past that we have, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. And it is here in this story, at this moment right here, that David is going to act in a way that shows the committed love of God. But then look at the second point here, how God's love has power over our stories. Read with me in verse four. The text says this, the king said to him, where is he? Which at this point we should be wondering and thinking, okay, why doesn't David particularly know where this person is? Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And we're going to pause right here again. Because we're looking at this idea how God's love has power over our stories. Another way to say that is God's love has power over our past. And we're not told at this point yet the name of the person that David is going to show love to. We're going to get to that in a moment. But here in verses 4 and 5, we're told the location of where this person is. This place called Lo-Debar. Lo-Debar. Now, why is this important? Well, this place is a, obviously a real place, somewhere in, in ancient Israel. But this place also, by its virtue of its name, has significance as well. That those two letters, Lo, in the text, is kind of the equivalent of our way of saying no or not. It's like the negation in Hebrew. So not something, no something. Devar or devar is the word for word or thing. So literally, this person that David is seeking to show committed love to is living in a place of nothing, is living in a place where there's no words, there's no life, there's nothing there at all. In other words, no man's land, placeless. The person that David is seeking, where is he, is living without a home is living without any sort of rootedness or connectedness to other people, family, 
resources. He's isolated. And this is the narrative that this person, as we'll see here in verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated or bowed himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant. So now we're told that David recognizes and sees that this person, the son of Jonathan, who's from the line of Saul, David's enemy, is named Mephibosheth. And David says his name, Mephibosheth. The one who is living in no place, with no word, no resources, Mephibosheth. I am the king. Here I am. Now think about this. Imagine with me for a moment. What are you thinking if you're Mephibosheth at this point? My life's over, right? What are you thinking if you're out in no man's land and the king's servants, the entourage comes to your door? Knock, knock, knock. The king's looking for you. How's that day going to go for you, right? And so I imagine... Mephibosheth has a bit of a walk from no man's land to the king's palace. And Mephibosheth is brought before King David. And what does King David do? He says his name, Mephibosheth. Up until this point, the narrative has been saying, the king, the king, the king, the king. The king asked, the king wondered, the king said. But here in our text right here, David said to Mephibosheth, It's almost like the narrator is trying to see how David is coming and meeting Mephibosheth where he's at, name to name. No longer from a place of the king, but David said to Mephibosheth. Now Mephibosheth, this is another very important name or word that we need to understand. Because literally what Mephibosheth means, what the name means, is the one who scatters shame or the one who is dealing with shame. And so here you have a man who, yes, a real person in a real place, who represents also this idea of one who is living and scattering in shame from no man's land. Someone who has this past, this difficulty, both physically and I would imagine emotionally and socially, of dealing with all of the shame that that culture would have brought him of being crippled in his feet. Not feeling worthy, not belonging, not being accepted in the culture. In fact, we're told earlier in a couple chapters prior that the reason that Mephibosheth is crippled is because at the news of Saul and Jonathan's death, a nurse with the best intentions picked up five-year-old Mephibosheth to run away from the battle in order to save his life. But that nurse tripped and fell and Mephibosheth was injured permanently. He became crippled in his feet. That happened when Mephibosheth was five years old. Can you imagine from the time of being a kindergartner to the time now where he is an adult, Mephibosheth has lived a life of shame and neglect in no man's land. This is the narrative, this is the story that Mephibosheth is living in. This is the The realm, this is what goes through his mind day in and day out. I'm not welcome. I'm not worthy. This is all that he has really known until that moment 
when the king's servants come knocking on his door, the king wants to see you. And again, I imagine that was a moment of fear. But it's also a moment where the king's love here is going to reshape and reorient that story of shame to now a story of honor. Taking Mephibosheth from a place of nothing, of no place, no home, to now, as we'll see in a moment, a place at the king's table. And this is the power of God's committed love. The power to reshape our stories. Those narratives of shame, those narratives of feeling like and believing that I don't have any worth within me. That I I don't belong. That I am an outcast in society. That I'm on the margins and that's where I belong. That I have no seat at the king's table at all. That was the furthest thing from Mephibosheth's mind. And he's lived in this narrative of isolation from the age of a little boy. Imagine living in that pattern year in and year out. Until this beautiful moment right here in our story where David says his name, Mephibosheth. But look what happens even next after that. David said to him, verse 7, do not fear. Some of the most powerful words the king could ever say to someone like Mephibosheth. Because David probably knows what's going through Mephibosheth's mind, right? A bunch of fear that David, that Mephibosheth is going to, this is his last moment of breath right now. But David reassures him. David takes that story that he's been living in, that story of fear and shame, and replaces that with the story of having no fear. Do not fear, Mephibosheth. I will show you, there's that key phrase again, the committed, loyal love of God For the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Verse 8, and he paid homage and said, this is Mephibosheth speaking, what is your servant that you should show regard? Look how Mephibosheth describes himself as a dead dog such as I. Now, you don't need to have a background in ancient cultures to understand that that phrase, dead dog, is not a high view of himself. Look at how Mephibosheth describes himself. I'm just a dead dog. Us in our culture, dogs are like, we love them, we celebrate them, we put up with them, at least with my dog. But they're beloved pets. In that culture, you see a dead dog on the side of the road, you're like, whew, thank goodness. One less pest to deal with in my town. And Mephibosheth likens himself to that creature, a dead dog on the side of the road. No one cares about. I'm just forgotten. Think about this. It's been so ingrained with his psyche that I am so worthless that I, I, I so don't belong that he describes himself as a dead dog. Now, I need to pause right here and also mention, though, that depending on who you read on this, different people think that what Mephibosheth is saying might be right or wrong with how he is to view himself. Because, here's the point, there is a sense that we as Christians should understand that as we come into the king's presence, Jesus himself, that there is a true legitimate sense that we are unworthy, that we really don't belong. 
that we have sin and guilt that we have personally done and that we have to own and repent of, that we do not earn or we do not deserve God's grace and mercy, 110% for sure. So perhaps, some might say, Mephibosheth is rightly understanding his state. Someone who doesn't belong, someone who doesn't worthy in that true biblical sense. But there's some who might say, no, Mephibosheth is wallowing in like this Eeyore-type shame where the narratives and identity have so overridden him that he just is so deflated and no longer truly living as how God intended him. And perhaps there's an element of truth in both as far as how Mephibosheth sees himself. But the point is for us as Christians today, we need to understand that there is a right way to understand that, yes, we are unworthy before the king. That we truly do not deserve the mercy and the forgiveness and the love that God has demonstrated to us. And that the moment we begin to think that I belong and I deserve a seat at the king's table because of how good I am or I'm not as bad as the person next to me or that I've done this or that, that is pride and that is sinful and that should be repented of. And at the same time, the moment that we remain in a state of shame where it becomes so overwhelming that we do not believe or trust the power of God's love to override that sense of unworthiness, we have then in that moment attributed more power to our own stories of shame than the power of God's love. And we need to be set free from that just as much as the pride on the other side. Both are equal and opposite errors. And depending on your story, you might lean one way or the other. But the point here in the text is that the love, the loyal love that King David is wanting to demonstrate and show has the power and is going to be powerful enough to override the narratives and the stories that Mephibosheth has been living with since he was a five-year-old little boy. And I can't help but wonder, for many of us in this room, whether it's been weeks or months or even decades of believing certain things about ourselves that maybe have a small smidge of truth or maybe a large truth that have become so overwhelming that it's the only way we ever see ourselves, that we do not then trust the power of God's love to override and forgive and cleanse us of those very things. And one of the things that I'm praying for and hoping for for every one of us in this room is that whatever that might be, just like we sung a moment ago, that we would come to Jesus and that we would experience the power of his love to release us and forgive us and to cleanse us from those ways of thinking that hold us back. We would be free from those barriers to truly knowing the power of God's love. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors and authors, would talk about how the primary thing in pastoral ministry for him was to help people see that no matter what, no matter their story, that they are truly loved by God. That was his primary objective, he would write. And how that would be a constant battle and struggle for people in his church decade after decade after decade. To truly believe that God's love is more powerful than all the negative things that have happened in your story.
you believe that? Do you rest in that? And this is where the text continues, though, with this idea, number three, that God's love has the power to give us what we cannot give or attain on our own. Look at verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, look at this, verse 10, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth, verse 11, ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Again, think about how in shock you would be as an ancient reader. Not only is David sparing the life of someone from the previous administration, David is welcoming this person into the most inner circle of the king. He has a seat perpetually forever at the king's table. Think about that for a moment. This is so counterintuitive to how love would work in that culture and even in our culture today. But this is the love of God being demonstrated, giving to Mephibosheth what he cannot gain and does not deserve on his own. And Mephibosheth, verse 12, had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. And again, we're told, he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. A couple things we need to see in this paragraph here. First, we've been told a couple times now that one of the things that Mephibosheth gains or receives is land. He's given land that used to belong to his father Saul. Now again, this is unheard of. Not only is his life being spared, but he actually gets a plot of land in the kingdom of the new king. And he's from the line of the king that in some ways should have been the king all along if Saul would have kind of kept his act together. And not only that, this is land not just like a patch of dirt off to the side somewhere. Because Mephibosheth is from the line of Saul, and Saul is a part of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the land that Mephibosheth is receiving is land in the promised land. Land within the borders of Israel. In other words, this is David's way of saying you truly do belong in the family. You truly do belong in this kingdom. That you're not just off to the margins, but you are inheriting and receiving the land that your family had all along. And even on top of that, it gets better. I kind of briefly mentioned it already, but I need to hone, double click on it a little bit more. That this Mephibosheth, the one who is full of shame, the one who scatters shame, is also getting a seat at the king's table. Getting a seat at the king's table is not something that just any old kind of person would get. 
Who ate with the king? Who sat and had meals with the king was reserved only for the most elite, only for the most powerful, only for the ones that the culture deemed worthy. And here, David is offering a seat at the table for the one who is full of shame. And the text has now told us twice he's crippled in his feet, which apparently, in my mind, means that that's a very important detail we should pay attention to, him being crippled in his feet. Again, because in that culture, the thought of the day was, if you had a disease or were crippled or some sort of physical malformity, it was because you did something wrong. And the gods were mad at you. This way of thinking actually trickles down to the disciples. Remember in John chapter 9? Who sinned? This man or his parents? Option A, option B. Because clearly, this man who's born blind, Jesus, someone did something wrong to cause this person's state. That's the narrative framework for many people in the ancient world. Option A, option B, and Jesus is like option X, like not even close. That this man's life is going to be used to glorify God. That this man, Mephibosheth, here in this chapter, the man born blind in John chapter nine, is a vehicle for God's glory to be demonstrated. A, a, A vehicle for God to show what kind of God he actually is. The God who is committed to his people no matter what. The God who rewrites our narratives. The God who gives us what we do not deserve. The God who comes to us and says, you know what? The culture thinks you're worthless. The culture wants to put you to the side. But here in this story, again, David's heart is so aligned with the heart of God that we're getting just a small taste of what it's like for Jesus to offer love Loyal love to us, to you, and to me. Because think about Jesus' own life. Again, one of the things that I want you to understand about this text is that this is a picture of exactly what Jesus has come to do for you and for me, to show the loyal love of God to us who do not deserve it. And when Jesus comes waltzing around first century Galilee, he comes and has meals and invites people to his table that do not deserve it. The lame, the blind, the sick, the prostitutes, The tax collectors. And Jesus is accused again and again. Why are you eating with these kinds of people? Why are you welcoming these kinds of people to your table, King Jesus, if you're truly the king? And how does Jesus respond? I have not come to call the healthy. I've called to come the sick. I've called to come those who are in need. And here in this story, we see this beautiful picture of what it looks like for God's loyal love to come to us. That Mephibosheth is gaining and receiving things that he cannot and would not attain on his own. And the same, friends, is true for you and I as we think about Jesus' love for us. We sang just a few moments ago that God so loved the world, based on John 3.16, that he what? Gave. He gave of himself freely. That whoever would believe in him would would not perish, but have life and life to the full. That this is what we have in Jesus. The one who has given us life, life in the kingdom, forgiveness of sins, mercy and compassion. Things that we cannot and will not ever attain on our own. 
only because of what he has done for us. So as we kind of wind this down a bit here, we've seen how God's love is powerfully committed to us. No matter who we are or what we've done, that has said loyal love of God. And that in the words of Paul, we can say equally that nothing, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, can ever separate us from the love of God that is found in who? Christ Jesus. That God's love is abundantly committed to us. And that second, God's love has power over our stories, power over those narratives of shame and wallowing in that to the point of where it's debilitating and no longer are we able to actually stand and say, yes, I'm a child of God. God's love comes to us in those moments and offers us freedom and release and breaks down those barriers that hold us back from truly experiencing the love of God in our lives. And then lastly, we come to understand that it is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we gain what we cannot have. We receive what we cannot attain on our own. And this is why, friends, I want to close our time by intentionally and practically receiving from God's love as we partake of communion. As the worship team comes up, I want us to I want us to slow down a bit here. Communion is a beautiful opportunity for us as Christians to remember and to practically recognize that we belong at the king's table. That because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of what he's done for us, we can turn from our sins and come to him. And he welcomes us. That we have a seat. And that the sacrifice of Jesus, his broken body and shed blood, reminds us of God's commitment to us. It reminds us of what he's done for us. And it reminds us again and again the power of God's love in our lives. So friends, as the worship team plays over these next a few moments here, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to slow down and to come forward as the Spirit leads you, as the Spirit reminds you this morning of the power of God's love. As you turn from sin, may the Spirit remind you of the power of God's amazing love. Come forward. There will be people to my right and to my left. And they're going to say to you as you take the bread and dip it in the cup, the body of Jesus broken for you. And the blood of Jesus shed for you. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was at a table with his disciples, with his friends. People that did not deserve to be there. And he took that bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took that bread himself and he dipped it in the wine. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out so that your sin and my sin can be forgiven. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine 
are tangible, practical, physical reminders of the power of God's love for you and for me. Let's not take this moment lightly. Let's rest and enjoy the power of God's love today. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your loyal love to each of us. We thank you that despite our unworthiness, despite our brokenness and our sin, that you offer us a seat at your table. So Father, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would help each and every one of us in this room right now to know in a deep and personal way the power of the love of Jesus in our lives. God, I pray that this truth would not just be just another abstract idea that we sung about when we were kids, but it would be something tangible and real and personal wherever we might be this morning. So Spirit of the living God, would you again and again and again remind us and show us how much we are loved by you. We pray these things to your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. If you're serving communion, I want to invite you to come up. In a few moments here, there'll be folks to my right and to my left to help serve communion.